Hi everyone, it's Guillaume from Startup Basecamp. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. During the show, you will have the opportunity to meet the best climate tech founders, investors, and experts from both Silicon Valley and around the globe. They will share with you their stories and personal journeys into this growing and exciting industry, giving you some insight into the ecosystems that help you to take part in the fight against climate change and benefit from the opportunities it can represent. Podcast is divided in two small interviews. During the first part, you will get to know our speakers, their perspectives on the climate crisis and how climate tech is changing the game. Second part of the discussion will be for members of our community who will learn the speakers' secret sauce on how to and share with you their unique expertise on topics such as fundraising, management, strategy and so on to help you to become a better leader in your field. So before we start, I would like to quickly share what we are doing at Startup Basecamp to support climate tech founders in accessing resources and gaining visibility with investors they seek. Our initiatives include a membership-based community platform offering access to a dedicated Slack group with a growing number of founders, experts and investors from around the world and a series of exclusive content such as interviews, weekly job listings, events, and our quarterly online pitch of night opportunity. But more than a place where you can learn, exchange, and grow, we are building a matchmaking service to facilitate connections between our members and top investors and experts in the field. And soon, alongside with other top investors, we will be launching a small fund to co-invest in the growth and acceleration of our members. Finally, all of this is possible because of your support and donations. We are a small self-funded team and we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. So please share one episode with a friend and subscribe to the channels. As an added bonus, we will plant a tree for each of our subscribers each time we reach 1,000 new fans or donors. Do not hesitate to connect with me via social media or email guillaume at Startup Basecamp. Thanks a lot for listening. I hope to get in touch with you soon. And now, let's go for the show. Hi everyone, during this new episode of Fondo Series, we are sitting down with Jeff Posserman, co-founder and CEO of Volpost. Volpost aims to boost the decarbonization of mobility by retrofitting existing lampposts into electric vehicle chargers and improving access to curbside charging for those living in cities. I was very much looking forward to speaking with Jeff, who had a mid-career pivot towards sustainability concurrent with the pandemic. Following initial studies in film with later work in advertising in New York, Jeff eventually ended up leading Samsung's business innovation program. During the pandemic, he pivoted towards climate and took a master's in sustainability management in Columbia University, where he met his co-founders and started Volpos as a solution to improve access to sustainable mobility. In this episode, Jeff explains the genesis of Volpos and the importance it plays in solving issues of equity in mobility. Only 2% of cars today are electric, yet cars make up a significant portion of the US GHG emissions. One of the primary adoption barriers is the lack of convenient and affordable charging in cities. In this podcast, we examine how Jeff is tackling this problem, how long it took to make the first prototype, what the competition looks like, and the ins and outs of bringing the product to market. During the second part of the talk, Jeff explains how to fundraise and bring a software and hardware solution to market. He also gives tips on managing work-life balance and the books that help him to do so. Jeff, welcome to the show. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the Tech for Climate podcast. I'm super happy to have you here with us today. I believe it's going to be a great opportunity to hear your story and learn more about your exciting adventure to decarbonize city mobility with Volpost. So welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Excited to join the talk. So before we start, there's a tradition for every guest that comes on the show. Can you give us a 30 second intro about Volpost? Sure thing. So we started Volpost with the goal to decarbonize mobility by democratizing charging access. We do this by retrofitting existing lampposts into electric vehicle chargers. By doing this, we can significantly reduce the cost 
timing and footprint of charger deployment to really unlock access curbside for people who live in cities. So let's start from the top. Uh, that's also a, no, a tradition, I would say, on the show. We like to understand who is the guest speakers as a person, uh, more than just uh, uh, I think exciting founders or investors. So can you tell, me, tell us a bit more about your uh, personal story and background? I mean, what are you passionate about? What do you love to do besides building Volpost? What makes you feel inspired or like your best self? I mean, as I always ask, who is Jeff? Who's Jeff is a long question, which I don't know if we'll get to the answer in one conversation, but uh, always good to look inward. Um, I never thought I would be doing this, as many people in the climate movement never thought that they would be diving into something like this, but we're on a shared mission right now to try and decarbonize all sides of society. And frankly, I'm just extremely passionate about trying to get us to net zero collectively for a better tomorrow. Um, you fast uh, rewind, apologize, uh, to the beginning of my career. I mean, honestly, I was working in a totally different industry. I moved to New York. I'm originally Canadian, um, from Toronto, grew up there, did an undergraduate in actually film, uh, totally different discipline and worked in content and advertising in New York city for my first few years out of college and really was passionate about telling stories and trying to make a positive impact through those stories uh was very inspired by things like an inconvenient truth and thought i was the one to tell stories behind the camera and then as my career progressed realized that we needed more people in front of the camera um taking a step up to try and do something about this um But fast forward, really, I worked in technology and media in New York for almost 20 years now. And that spans working in advertising agencies and launching global campaigns for big brands, um, working at big tech companies like Samsung, which was my last position prior to starting Volpost. In that role, I was the director of innovation where I led a product development team here in New York City. We had a team also in Silicon Valley as well as in Texas. And basically we would take early concepts through to commercialization across different disciplines for Samsung. And really with all that, recognize where we are in the climate window to do something about this and wanted to pivot my career into building something that really could make positive impact. So I think it's a good segue for, for my next question. And you already like uh, unveiled a little bit your, your own journey and professional journey as well. So what if you could like maybe, you know, record one or two, I would say, key experiences, uh, work or life experience that you, you had on that uh, along that journey that in a way gave you an edge to start uh, Volpost? Um, well, certainly by leading an innovation team at Samsung, um i was focused on looking at consumer pain points and problems and how we could leverage technology in innovative ways to bring new products to market both here in the us and then globally and in that role you're building out business cases uh prototypes uh some of the first voice enabled products for samsung some of the first augmented reality apps on the flagship phones, um, the fridge with the screen on it, with cameras inside, a whole bunch of things. And really through that process, you're trying to figure out like, what do people really want or need? And what problems are we really trying to solve? And really the climate crisis has so many problems, frankly, across all industries that when you apply that similar thinking to climate, and really start to understand the climate science, you can start to find a plethora of uh, viable solutions because the technology is pretty much there. Just need more people standing up and doing something with it. Exactly, and that, that reminds me of my, uh, one of my previous interviews with uh, uh, Ibrahim from uh, Full Cycle, who was like, you know, when there's a fire in the garden, I mean, you don't need to invent the, the, the horse. Uh, you have the hose already. We just need to, you know, build this uh, this technology and scale it. So uh, indeed, uh, there's a lot of uh, existing technologies that are very exciting that uh, needs to uh, needs to grow. So you mentioned uh, a little bit, like uh, prior to that uh, as well, that um, 
this what was your motivation in a way to jump into the, the climate uh, clean tech uh, ecosystem coming from um, you know the Samsung uh, did you, do you have like any haha moment uh, that you can recall or that you would define as such uh, yeah I mean certainly did and I think a lot of people who jump into the climate movement have a, a moment uh, where they decide to make the great climate pivot and in my case I mean it was really around the start of the pandemic where I was trying to figure out what did I want the next chapter of my career to look like. And then, um, although I was looking at a few different potential positions at big tech companies and similar things to what I was doing at Samsung, uh, recognized I needed to start asking why I wanted to do what I wanted to do next rather than what. And through kind of changing that question and focusing on purpose, it brought me down a different path. So really for me, it was in 2019, it was people like Greta Thunberg and Christine Thurgaris and other people who were inspiring, um, sending signals out into the world. And around the same time, I am a father and my son was just starting to walk. So when you have this juxtaposition of my experience in tech and media, um, things like that happening in the world as signals, and then having a kid at that age where you start to think and do the math of they're talking about 2030 or 2050 or whatever year into the future, and what kind of world are we leaving behind? So then when you go deeper in that and you're in the start of a pandemic, you start to think, well, what can I do and what is my role within that? Um, and I guess my central question or pivot moment was recognizing that when my son is the same age that I am now, I want to be able to look in his eyes and say that I've done everything I could. And with that, if you truly embrace that as I did, you start taking different actions as to what to do with your professional life. And for me, that actually led me to um, pursue master's in sustainability management at Columbia University, which I started in the pandemic and graduated this spring, because I really wanted to understand the climate science and some of these pain points, as I mentioned, like what I was doing at Samsung, to figure out how to spin out some kind of climate technology that can make a measurable impact. And then while at Columbia, actually in my first semester there, wrote a research paper that sparked into what Full Post is today, um, recognizing that there's a lack of convenient and affordable charging in cities, recognizing that there's one to 2% of cars on road that are electric, that we need to get to 100%, that we need to decarbonize across everything that if people don't take steps like what we're doing with Volpost, we're just not going to get there. So. I think it's put the, the perfect time to move to my uh, my next question. I see that you're already uh, unveiling like uh, all the different uh, points that I wanted to cover with you. So before we go into the the detail of the genesis of Volpost, uh, we'd like to zoom out and that's what we like to do on the show try to understand and take a step back and understand like the overall context that you are evolving or surfing on. So let's try to get your overview of the so-called, uh, you know, EV market uh, in the US today. I mean, maybe we can start with uh, to understand like how much the traditional personal transportation can, you know, contribute to a greenhouse gas emission. And I mean, how far are we in terms of decarbonizing uh, this uh, this part or this uh, this sector in itself? And then maybe we can under, we, we'll ask you a little bit more about like who are the main you know EV players and the charging. But uh, let's start maybe with the, the general context. Where are we at today? Sure thing. So obviously on the top line, greenhouse gases made this the hottest decade ever recorded and GHG emissions need to be cut in half by 2030 and reach net zero by 2050. That's the framework that we're all operating under. Um, according to the EPA, uh, in the US, transportation is about a third of GHG emissions and cars are the largest source. Um, there's about 2% approximately of cars in the US today that are electric. And obviously we need to accelerate EV adoption in order to reach that 
net zero goal. So, and we're just not moving fast enough. The primary adoption barrier to purchasing an EV, whether you read a report from McKinsey or Bloomberg or talk to the person next to you, is the fact that there's not convenient and affordable charging. Um, and this is amplified when you look at people who don't have a garage or live in the suburbs, but people who live in cities who primarily park on the street. In most major cities, uh, in the US at least, in our research, um, you find that over half the cars park on the street and 80% approximately of the charging happens at home in this overnight scenario. So when you look at all these numbers, and I know I just bit a whole bunch of numbers at you, it begins to paint a framework where you start to see that there needs to be a charging solution to serve city drivers, people who live in densely populated neighborhoods, who primarily park on the street. And so that's what led us to look at how can we provide a curbside solution for charging, which was, we just believed that it wasn't just a one size fits all solution, uh, not just any charge point for any environment, but there's a specific experience to match the use case. So with that, with full post, we looked at the infrastructure that's already there and if we could actually do a retrofit, use what's already there, there's 26 million lampposts and streetlights across the US, as an example. There's about 300,000 just here in New York City. Obviously, they don't all make sense to do as a retrofit, but when you're looking at those numbers and the numbers of chargers that are needed in order for us to go from gas to electric, there's a handful of them, which we've done analysis, that could make sense to convert. Um, and that's not just in the US, but that's obviously internationally as well. And, and, and we'll check that out a little bit later. But can, can you tell us a bit more about like in terms of like uh, EV? I mean, you, you mentioned that, I mean, who are the, the, the profile according to you that you identify that are like the, the users of, uh, of EV today? Um, what is blocking in a way um, EV in general to go uh, mainstream? Is it like uh, uh, current regulation are not like adequate to that or there's a need of new regulation? Uh, is it maybe the cost of uh, access to EV that is uh, still too high? I mean, what is the, according to you, what, what is blocking the, the EV market to go really mainstream? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a great question. And I would say like any new technology, there's an adoption curve. And when you're looking at innovation, we're still in the early days of EV adoption. When I speak around the 2% of cars on road that are electric and the need to go to 100%, obviously we're still in that early adopters area. And when you're in that area, there's generally less price sensitivity and people who are doing it from a lifestyle perspective or believe in it from a sustainability perspective or just love having the greatest in tech. Um, but as we reach kind of the 5% number, you start to go from that early adopters into the mainstream or the early cusp of that mainstream. And then the decision points of people getting behind the wheel are a little bit different. Those early adopters are willing to put up with more friction. And um, in a case of that curbside example, maybe park curbside and drive across town to the nearest charger because they believe that they should have an EV or just think it's the greatest thing and they can afford to, frankly. Um, but obviously as it goes into the mainstream, costs come down, um, people are just not willing to put up with that much friction or annoyance time out of their lives. So you really need to focus on convenience and affordability. And that's really, kind of with that transition where we're focused on how we unlock equity so everyone can get behind the wheel of an EV and it's not just um, people driving luxury cars. Zoom, zooming out a little bit on, on EV again uh, in general, like, I mean, which categories in the transportation landscape do you see is extremely hard to and difficult in a way to deploy EV solution? I mean, that could uh, really uh, accelerate against that and, and provide clean transportation contribute to the, the flight of climate change. Do you see any like 
categories or you really like you you believe that uh, what we have today is uh, that's where how far we can uh, we can go i mean it's a great question and i think it comes down to that we need more people stepping up to have the ambition to be climate tech entrepreneurs because there really is tremendous opportunity across this entire value chain and ecosystem so we're focused on a specific use case but Really, when you look at the charging ecosystem, it's almost like I describe it like the beginning of the internet or the beginning of the mobile app revolution. We are at a complete turning point where you have the policy and market dynamics, which are pushing us in this direction at 100 miles an hour, rightfully so. And now there's just so many things that need to be built and figured out. And yes, there is true scientific breakthrough in some of this. But a lot of this is just people connecting the dots and recognizing that if, and being creative in the puzzles that they want to solve passionately. Um, and just to get specific to your question, I mean, from charging a bus or charging an ambulance or charging, or what is the right zero emission fuel even for a plane, which isn't necessarily a battery. Um, all of the transportation sector needs to convert. All of the built environment obviously needs to convert. I mean, really, <laughs> you can pretty much look at anything that happens today in society. And if you are passionate about climate and can have a general understanding of product management and technology, look at how can we take a step to the right and do that without carbon? And I believe at least if you're creative about it and have a bit of a business sense, that there truly is something right around that corner. Um, some of it does need the hard science, but a lot of it just needs people who are passionate to take that step and embark on this journey. Do you see um, any difference between EU, Canada, because you're, you're from there, and, and the US in general in terms of uh, uh, EV adoption or mentality to adopt uh, EV? Uh, What's your, what's your take on that? Um, I think that obviously Canada and US have a great relationship historically and that Canada has generally been more progressive in certain ways in the green movement. However, the US is really stepping up and frankly has tremendously more resources just in its sheer size. And Right now, it's not about one country versus another. This is a shared mission that we're all on and that both countries are showing great leadership. They're obviously a little bit behind what's happening in Europe. There's no question. And I think that's very exciting that there's lessons learned from what's happening in Europe that can be brought into the North American market for both countries. Um, but really, I mean, it starts on the local level getting community groups engaged, getting even the small municipalities excited about this with uh, mayors who are inspiring and willing to be trailblazers in this. Um, we need this across the board. So I don't like talking the political dimension of who's doing it right or better. I just think we need more people who are willing to fight the good fight across the board. And I think there's been a lot of exciting news, obviously, in the US in the last few months that are shifting the needle in that direction. And do you believe that um, uh, subsidizing uh, EVs is the way to accelerate the deployment and the adoption? Or do you think that the market in, in itself could, uh, uh, you know, as uh, uh, producers and, and constructors are like producing more, the, Cost, unit cost will go down and uh, in a way the uh, uh, buyers uh, are there uh, willing to buy. So do we need to spend uh, billions of dollars to uh, accelerate and, and subsidize this, uh, this type of industry? I think it's like if you historically look at all technology, it goes to that innovation curve. And if we collectively believe that the cost of going zero versus business as usual is worth taking, then yes, there's an upfront development toward getting us there to spur more people to do the right thing. And that's 
frankly, like the macro policy economics, which I can speak to, but I'm not the economist. Um, but I can say that it does get a lot of companies to make business decisions. I don't think you can look at this as purely one side or the other, like just pure sustainability or just what's happening in the business world from a capitalist perspective. We have to fuse those values so it's purpose alongside profit. And if some incentives and investment over the next few years help us close this last window to do something about it, get people to actually take the stand from a business perspective as well, that they can fully get behind for their short shareholders and board, then fantastic. And it's obviously spurred so much money in the last few years uh, from a venture capital perspective and private equity into this space. So frankly, I'm all for it if it helps us get to the ultimate goal. To close this section on uh, on EV, I mean, as everyone knows, like there's always some controversy around like EV solutions uh, related to you know, the the rare earth uh, element uh, coming into the the battery, uh, the battery recycling recycling uh, per se. Um, is sometimes the, the source of uh, energy used to uh, load those those batteries. I mean, so according to you, I, what is the real impact that EV could have on slowing down uh, climate change? Is it something uh, really net positive, I would say, or is it more like a buzz, silver bullet, greenwashing, uh, you know, tool? And I mean, what needs to happen to make it like uh, cleaner and, and, and better? Yeah, 100%. So I don't have the exact math in tons of carbon, but I can tell you that I've read the research and that it is simply a fraction, a tiny fraction of carbon to produce those batteries in relation to the carbon that is reduced over the lifetime of owning an electric car. So it's not to say like manufacturing any product across the life cycle has some waste along the way. There's no question about that. But when you really look at it, it's a tiny fraction and there's going to be continued improvement along the supply chain to go net zero across everything. I also look at electric cars as one aspect of a larger mobility ecosystem um, from e-bikes and scooters and obviously public transit that we're not trying to promote private car ownership, although we are charging cars. Uh, we are trying to decarbonize mobility. And with that broader vision, I think it opens up that when we see what cities need from a transportation perspective, the future of cities to be sustainable without carbon, then hopefully we can play a part by providing this one access point and initial product, but also support other areas of decarbonizing the larger transportation ecosystem. So now let's go deeper into uh, into Volpost. I mean, what's the story behind it? And uh, and you already mentioned a little bit uh, Columbia University, your master's and uh, and the research. So uh, tell us a bit more about uh, the story and the, the the initial gap that you identify uh, that led to the the current uh, version of uh, of Volpost. I mean, why did uh, Volpost uh, have to exist? Uh, yeah, sounds good. So I'll rehash a little bit so we can go in a chronological order. Um, but given the state of the climate crisis, I decided to interject on my job at Samsung somewhere near the start of the pandemic to start the master's program in sustainability management at Columbia University. And I really saw that as my great climate pivot to understand what needed to be developed from a science perspective and then leverage my experience in business and technology to actually develop something, whether that meant join an early stage climate tech company, wasn't sure if I was gonna found something myself. It was really just an open discovery process. And through the research, developed a few business cases and one of them was Goalpost. And after writing this initial research paper, started to kick the idea around with a few people. Um, I have two co-founders in this journey. First one, Jorn Vicari, I met at Samsung, where he led product design across all smart enabled categories. He has about over at this point, 20 years of product direction experience, 
uh, over 50 patents to his name. And we worked together to bring products to market based in San Francisco as experience in New York earlier in his career. And really just believed in the same sustainable mission. Um, and I knew that with his hardware development experience and my business and tech experience, product management, that we already complemented and frankly had done this before at a big company. Um, the second co-founder, Luke Myro, I met at Columbia, uh, where we co-led a group called the Environmental Entrepreneurs, which was a student group in the master's program where we were trying to find opportunities uh, in climate tech and spin them out of the Columbia experience into the real world. And prior to starting full post, Luke was at Barclays, where he managed energy clients and really had a passion for equity and trying to make a positive impact and saw how we could do that with full posts. Um, and really, once we had the three of us united, and that was early last year under this shared mission, um, had the foundation to explore if this could be something for real. And that led us to taking early customer discovery conversations, um, basically putting together a deck with some design and the general thought of what this could be to constituents in New York City. And once we had conversation after conversation of people saying, yes, this is a little bit tough if you actually want to do this. However, it is absolutely needed and you should. Um, got us to take a step back and say, maybe we actually have something here. Uh, we ended up filing initial patent in the US and then ultimately quickly getting into an accelerator called Venture for Climate Tech, where we're part of the inaugural cohort, um, over 600 companies and about 10 selected. We were actually the only one based here in New York, was funded through NYSERDA, the New York State Energy Research Development Authority. And um, yeah, that kind of just got us going. Um, so maybe you can tell us a bit more about the, the hardware side of it. Uh, we all know that uh, it's always like uh, one of the most challenging part of like when you when you start a startup. A tech startups are really complicated. A hardware startups it, it ten times a hundred times more complicated. So maybe can you please like you know describe for the, the listeners your your product and and how how does it work? How do you retrofit uh, the existing uh, lens post? Um, and then after that, we'll go on to the, the UX experience. So let's really focus on the on the product, uh, you know, the hardware part of it. And uh, maybe you can tell us like uh, how long it took you to put uh, the first prototype. Uh, what were the initial challenges that you uh, that you find? So uh, tell us a bit more on your your secret sauce. <laughs> Sounds good. I don't know if we can go into the total secret sauce as some of that is behind closed doors, but. <laughs> Uh, kidding aside, so really we saw an opportunity looking at the fact that there's a ton of existing infrastructure and land posts are curbside, that could we take what's already there and put hardware on top of it, which would essentially transform it from just a standard land post into an EV charger. And under that hypothesis, went through Tremendous customer discovery before we built anything. Uh, spoke to municipalities, utilities, companies, hundreds and hundreds of conversations. And this is because we're trying to develop something that is frankly very hard, selling into cities, public-private partnerships, and you wanna make sure you're building the right thing um, before you raise any money, uh, before you start tinkering too far down the rabbit hole uh, where you can't go back. So with that, I mean, learned a lot and recognized that one, doing a retrofit charger could significantly reduce the cost and timing to install chargers because we could avoid construction and trenching by tapping directly into the conduit, into the grid, um, which was the first major value prop discovery. The second is obviously by not taking up new curb space in the built environment by just being minimally on top of the thing that was already there, then it would be more broadly accepted by existing community members. It would fit in the fabric of those communities 
and could be embraced as a beacon of sustainability, uh, something we'd be proud of rather than a new thing sitting on the sidewalk. Um, then you start getting a little bit deeper in what this product does and the differentiation. And one, uh, we saw some of, thing, some of the things that were happening in Europe and it was traditionally a bring your own cable approach and recognized that by having the metering system inside the actual charger, it would be more broadly accepted by partners in North America. Um, and frankly, in many parts of the world as well. Um, so we looked at rather than bring your own cable approach, really an integrated solution where everything could be curbside and in the box. It also reduces friction for drivers by not having to physically bring your own cable, same way you don't have to bring your own gas pump to the gas station. Um, that aside, I mean, that was part of that early product development. We then started to think about how could we further differentiate and create value. And a component of that was looking at this in a modular and upgradable format and thinking about what additional infrastructures or service could we provide cities as well as residents. And that unlocks our future roadmap, which obviously we haven't fully revealed yet publicly, but you start to think about what else could be in the smart cities of the future of tomorrow in a sustainable way and create value for the constituents. Um, yeah, happy to answer more questions about that. Yeah, definitely. So I'd like to know, like, I mean, is it applicable to any uh, land posts that uh, are existing or is it only for specific ones? I mean, you mentioned that uh, you guys are uh, in project in New York City. Is that, uh, I mean, how many different type of land posts are existing in the, in the US uh, and which one are you able to fit in? Good question. Um, and I never thought I would be an expert on land posts, but here we are. Um, so there are different designs of lampposts, uh, and you will never look at a lamppost the same way if you listen to the end of this, as you'll be shouting <laughs> them out on a street near you. Um, but there is a standard configuration, which is the most broadly adopted uh, with the conduit on the bottom. It's also a wood pole, which is the second most broadly uh, used not even lampposts in some cases, sometimes it's just an electrical. And really focusing on the most broadly, broad scope of adoption, that's where we start. And then when you look at ornate uh, designed lampposts, it really usually has some kind of historical value or community value. And we're really just not trying to go down that road in this early stage as some of the feedback we had as to why not to. Um, so there's millions of those. We've done independent research projects. It's much easier to look at a specific city and confirm how many lampposts there are and then do geospatial analysis around factors like population density, car ownership, both gas and electric, um, what the grid capacity has, parking regulation, equity factors, and propose where to do lamppost charging. But when you start talking on macro country and global levels, it just kind of becomes a more difficult conversation to accurately depict. Um, so we're really taking a city first approach. Mm -hmm. So on the user experience side, I mean, you know, uh, how does it work? I mean, I arrive with my car, I parked, uh, I found a spot in the street. Uh, I see the, the lamppost is there. I mean, uh, how does it work? I have my uh, my Tesla. I need to should I go to a Tesla uh, speed charger or should I go to yours? Uh, I mean, what type of card uh, you know can use your uh, your port? Where do we? F I mean, and how do I uh, find you? Uh, how do I maybe join or create an account? Like, uh, can you help us to visualize maybe the the process and how do, how does it work? Is it from my phone or is it directly on the pole? Sure. Yeah. So we're still early in our company's development, we're just launching our first units over the next month or so, which is exciting to get them up and show people how it works. Uh, so you cannot find it yet on a curb near you, but hopefully one day soon, um, just to clarify. But then when we talk about the experience, essentially on your EV, you typically would have a heads up 
display in the vehicle. And obviously most people have smartphones at this point. Um, so you pull up your mobile app and be able to see where the chargers are around you on a map. And then ultimately we are looking at parking and charging reservations alongside just being able to pull up and charge. And by providing that, when you're looking at densely populated city streets, you could solve two problems or two pain points for certain people when there are EV only spots. That's not a requirement on our side, but we're starting to see that certain cities actually are converting spots to EV only for charging because they recognize they can then increase utilization for those chargers and ultimately provide more value to their residents over time. Um, but we're not trying to get in the parking regulation game. We're just trying to support it with reservations when it makes sense for the municipality to provide them. Um, but then you would pull up to the vehicle, whether you make a res reservation or just show up, and then unlock the charger tied to the lamppost. There would be LED light feedback on the physical lamppost. You'd see that connection on your device, like pairing headphones or another piece of hardware with your phone today. And then essentially you would be able to take the handle and plug in and you're good to go. Then when you walk away, there's standard notifications notifying you when to come back to your vehicle when you're almost finished. And then we're looking at different um, pricing mechanisms to support um, potentially lower pricing for say overnight charging when there's lower demand on the grid. Um, and that's a utility specific question. Obviously the same way I compare it to uh, different prices for Uber or Lyft uh, based on your vehicle preference. So before we, we jump a little bit more into the, the final, I mean, the economics of, uh, of Volpo's, um, how long, I mean, does it take to charge your, uh, your car or fast or what's the speed, uh, the voltage that you're able to pull out of those uh, poles and how long uh, compared to, uh, you know, those, uh, I'm using the Tesla uh, charger, but like what's the ratio in terms of, of speed? I mean, is it more like an overnight charging or is it something that uh, uh, after like doing my shopping, going to restaurants, uh, my car is uh, fully loaded uh, after, how long does it take? And uh, and maybe you, you can tell us, maybe do you guys have thinking to have also like uh, a way to uh, distress, I would say, the, the, the grid at peak time? Uh, is that something that you're also considering with uh, with what you do or maybe using the, the car was parked overnight to, in a way, put more energy back into the into the grid? Is that possible? I mean, tell us. <laughs> Lots of good questions. Um... So first it's level two charging, not DC fast charging today. And there's a few reasons for that. Um, the first is the grid just simply in the densely populated built environment can't handle fast charging everywhere. Um, the second is that when you think about the use case of how people park in cities today, they're usually not driving more than 20 to 30 miles. And the reality is they're usually parking for hours at a time, not for 30 to 60 minutes. Um, so with that, it actually fits better into the fabric of people's lives to have a bit of a slower charge. And then obviously it doesn't have that much pressure on the grid from a stability perspective. Then if you really, we like to really look at it more from the lens of like how much time does it take out of a person's life? So if you're able to, pull up to where you park today in a city, plug in and top off your battery, then ultimately maybe that's a two minute experience, right? Versus having to go on a mission to a fast charger, which may be on the edge of town or shopping mall or whatever. And that totally makes sense for certain moments where that fits into your life. But otherwise, if, if you just need to charge, you're kind of going on an hour to two hour mission just to figure out how to charge and then come back, um, which we just thought wasn't going to be feasible at scale. And finding that obviously drivers and customers don't want to have to deal with that if they're used to driving a gas car and just pull up to a pump. Um, so that's kind of like foundationally how you land at the level two piece. Um, we also are not 
hold it to remaining level two over time. I mean, it's like every new technology, things get faster and cheaper. And by having this unique form factor and focusing on this use case as uh, things become faster and cheaper, like there's level 2.5 or whatever comes around the corner next, um, we can support that in next year's model of the charger. And that's why it was important for us from day one to design this in a modular and upgradable format. So if the hard science, or when the hard science continues to advance, that we can back that up in next year's model, uh, similar to the next Samsung phone or next iPhone with a better camera or faster processor. And that just creates an opportunity both for cities to offer the latest and greatest and for drivers to recognize that there is technology development here in play over the next few years. Um, then when you talk about like the future of charging as another part of your question there, I mean, vehicle to grid and bi-directionality is definitely something top of mind and of the future of cities, but we really look at it again, similar to that Samsung experience, like where does that fit into the roadmap and where are we today and what are consumers willing to adopt today and tomorrow versus further into the future. And I mean, people have been talking about the metaverse for, I don't know, over a decade. Okay. And it's just got a new name and new veneer, fresh paint, but nothing fundamentally has changed for people who've been working in tech other than a rebranding exercise with that one. And in a similar way, people are going to continue to talk about B2G and bi-directionality, and there's going to be tasks that are done toward that goal. And I do believe it's part of the vision of the future for sustainability, sustainable cities, but we're just not there yet. So from our perspective, we're looking to unlock distribution for the widest possible audience to be able to use these things. And that's using the JPlug socket, which is the standard socket on all cars, except for Tesla's today. Tesla's have an adapter. I always use the dongle Apple experience. You attach that and then it plugs straight into a JPlug. And really that enables anybody in the North American market, at least, to use the charger as the stand, that's pretty much the standard at this point, but mm -hmm. if that continues to evolve, we're just following what is best practices. So pretty much every major OEM has used that today and we're just following suit. So a couple of more questions uh, for you. And i like to understand, like, I mean, you spoke a lot and you spoke with uh, a lot with those uh, municipalities and politicians and like uh, neighborhoods, uh, community uh, organizers, like, in terms of regulation, like what did they ask you uh, to crack uh, in a way to accept and adopt uh, your upcoming solution? Because as you mentioned, uh, your first uh, fully prototype will uh, will be ready in weeks or a couple of weeks or months. I don't remember exactly the timing, but uh, what was exactly like uh, the, the, the challenges in terms of, of regulation and, and do they need to adopt uh, and change something at the city level uh, to allow you uh, and Volpos to, to, uh, to, to, to launch at a larger scale? Is it the same regulation in any cities in the, in the US or every city is when you will go uh, to the next cities, you will need to again go through the same uh, regulation uh, challenges, I would say. Um, tell us a bit more about, uh, about that and, and maybe, yeah, we'll cover the the speed of retrofitting uh, after. I'd like to know that too. Sounds good. Um, all good questions. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, I always start when going down this path that what we're doing is hard, but the level of hard versus the level of need has to be evaluated. And the reality is that when you talk to cities, you talk to utilities and recognizing this is a public private partnership for the greater good, they want this to exist and they recognize there's work ahead, but in order to meet our climate targets, we need to provide convenient and affordable charging across all communities. So 
if this is going to be a piece of the puzzle to get there, then the question is, where are we with regulation today? And what needs to be adjusted in order to provide a pathway toward that end? And the reality is parking regulation is a machine in and of itself. And every city, every municipality has their own thoughts on what should, can, and cannot be done. And we try to not get into that zone other than providing support and recognize that if you were to convert more spots into EV only charging spots, then more people will be blocked by gas cars and can charge there. And if your goals are truly to meet these climate targets, and if you recognize that you are truly far behind, then maybe it's a good idea to consider that. Um, that regulation aside, I mean, looking at the chargers themselves, we safety is the utmost priority. And obviously we're adding a new device curbside. So the first step is making sure that we pass all safety certification standards in whatever market we're entering. And like any new consumer product, whether it be a TV, a fridge, a charger, they all go through standard safety um, tests. And we're going through the same thing to make sure that that is a priority. And then the second is once we're through that phase and ready to go in the right of way in the built environment for people to start charging next year, then you start looking at, well, what else needs to change, if anything? Um, and it's a new consumer behavior, the same way a lot of the tech companies the last year that people describe as disruptive. It's really just people believing like, well, that could be something that exists. I want it to exist more than I think it's hard or what have you. And when that idea spreads into more people accepting it as the norm, there is a tipping point in the acceptance of the idea just as much as there is in the development of the technology itself or the policy shifts that need to happen. And what gives us excitement and hope every day coming to do this seemingly impossible task is that, frankly, everybody we talk to really wants this to exist and is doing everything they can to go to their way to support our mission. And we look at this truly as a purpose-driven organization and want to serve the, our constituents. Um, so to have this much support is really what fuels us as a small team trying to make a difference. So speaking about the, the economics of, uh, of uh, expected economics of, of Volpos, I mean, uh, who is, um, you know, uh, who will finance uh, the, the retrofitting? Uh, what's the, maybe if you can tell us a bit more about like the expected unique cost uh, that uh, that you have and that you will have in the in the future. How long does it take to, to switch uh, or to adjust or to adapt uh, one of those samples to uh, with your uh, with your system? If you can tell us a bit more about uh, that uh, that part. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, one of the challenges with scaling charging deployment today is the construction and trenching required the soft costs to get these unit up, units up. So by doing this as a retrofit, the core piece of this is that we can cut that almost to zero. Obviously you still need somebody to install it, but now you're cutting out the work to tear up the sidewalk or the street. There's still permits, but there's less complicated versions of that and getting those approvals. And essentially we can reduce what was a few weeks of work down to a few hours for that install. And that's really the core of it, which can significantly reduce cost. Um, we've done certain analysis where it can be over 10 times cheaper, but it really is dependent on the environment. Uh, in a city like New York, uh, it's really expensive to do anything in the built environment. And that's where we can see that 10x savings when you're doing that construction, trenching, et cetera. In smaller towns, it's still providing significant cost savings in comparison, if you're just looking apples to apples um, from a level two charger. And it's obviously still not taking up that new curb space. Um, so it just kind of fits in. Um, I mean, our unit economics are 
still frankly being formalized of what do we take from what we're doing in the lab to what we're doing in market. We have projections and all the math worked out. And if there were investors listening who want to really dig into that, I'm happy to have that conversation. For the purposes of the wider audience, I would say that we know it's cheaper to do what we're doing from all the customer discovery that we've had over the last year and a half to two years now. And it just becomes a question of by what factor. And we know it's faster to deploy significantly based off of doing it as a retrofit. And again, it becomes a question of what factor and what KPIs we want to look at collectively and say, well, if you can do it by that level versus this, then it truly would be an impact. But from a BD pipeline perspective, frankly, we have far more interest and demand than we know what to do with as a small team, which is a good problem to have, but it's still a problem for us. And that we have to focus on the right opportunities. Uh, thankfully, our first pilot is with the New York City Department of Transportation and New Lab. And that's us getting the first bulk post units up in the next few weeks, uh, just in the final stages of getting things shipped and fabricated and pulled together. Uh, so we can show people how it works around Climate Week in New York in September. Um, so we're really excited about that. We've had cities across the country and companies that talk about wanting to deploy hundreds or thousands of units. And we, I look at it like we have to walk before we run, like anything else. You have to work out the kinks, get that first one up, refine, make sure we get all the safety certifications sorted, and then scale up to our initial uh, real world pilots up to around 50 units before you scale it up into the hundreds, if not thousands. Mm -hmm. But that is certainly a mission and we will get there and we're racing as quickly as we can against the clock. Uh, but hopefully it makes a measurable impact for the next generation. Almost last question for you for this uh, this part. I'd like to understand a little bit about the um, business model. Uh, you didn't, you, you're like, are you still you guys still figuring out like who's going to finance the the hardware uh, component of it? Uh, is it the, the municipalities? Is it you? Is it through a um, debt uh, mechanism? How, how do you see that? I mean, if you can tell us about like uh, how Volpos will, uh, will make money in the future. Sure. So we're running this. We look at all the different ways you could possibly make money. We've put a lot of spreadsheets together and had a lot of conversations with VC, private equity, and other angel investors to get us to this point and learned a lot. And one of it, one of the core tenants essentially of the model is to do this as a hardware as a service business. So similar to like a software as a service business, but for hardware. And that's packaging up the charger, the data, the software, and licensing that to partners over multiple years. Obviously, I sometimes use the example of the Peloton for charging. Essentially, once you have the hardware, then you're licensing the software, the content in that uh, realm to the user over the lifetime value. And you know that there's a certain lock-in to that. In our cases, there's multi-year government contracts, essentially, to keep these units up for citizens. And then there is the utilization revenue, which we don't really look at as ours. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Um, one, because of utilization being so inconsistent in the early days, we have to go from 2% of cars a road up to 100%, and there's a whole <laughs> process to get there. Um, Two, we don't want to be built into the cost of electricity. Um, it's a pass through to the utility company at the kilowatts consumed. And we don't want to be marking that up to the end users, drivers, because frankly, we think that there is a willingness to pay. And once you make the electricity too expensive, then those who aren't marking up the electricity will be in a better spot. Um, lastly, there's an opportunity for municipalities if they wanted to have fees built into it to explore as an opportunity to revenue generate from the chargers over the um, project. And then by doing it as a hardware as a service model, essentially allows us to access debt financing. So it's not just all on the equity side, because we can paint a picture that over the contract value, 
of X amount of chargers, Y amount of years, and this consistent revenue paid through the municipality or the company, depending on who the partner is, that you can then enter the realm of project finance. Um, and that really unlocks the ability to scale something. Last question on my side in terms of uh, competition. You mentioned that uh, there's people doing the same uh, similar things in, uh, in Europe. Do you have any direct competition in the US? Uh, and if so, in the rest of the world, I mean, how you guys are different or taking a different approach? Or maybe you guys are better, I don't know. Uh, I mean, it's an emerging charging ecosystem. And when we talk about competition, you can look at it from different lenses. One is, yes, there is a company in the UK um, who is focused on lamppost charging and ultimately have a different approach where they have drill a socket into the lamppost, we're non-invasive, we're capturing all of the tech in the unit itself. So in that, um, the judicial infrastructure just service value. And there hasn't been a challenge on our side in people seeing the difference and the greater value in what we're proposing. Um, that aside, I mean, when you look at curbside, there's companies that are looking at that space as well. And frankly, it's not going to be one company in my mind at all that is going to dominate everything. But we are in a bit of a land grab right now of recognizing that basically chargers need to be everywhere accessible in the public sphere. Um, and it's just such a white space that when you have a product that is differentiated like ours, and it's not just a one size fits all charge point, um, then there's a lot of opportunity of places where those traditional chargers just frankly can't enter and can't compete on cost. Um, and then when you look at the broader charging ecosystem, really, we don't want to create walled gardens. We want to have an open charging distribution strategy, which means that as the end user, to reduce friction, it's about being able to surface our pins, our chargers on other maps and apps and vice versa, and just unlocking the opportunity. And we're not there yet, but this is part of any new sector where everybody build their thing and they build a thing that might be a little bit duplicative of a partner or a competitor's thing. But eventually in a couple of years, you realize actually there's a lot of charging apps that end up doing the same thing unless you open it up. So you can have chargers across different apps and maps in order to serve the customer in the best way. Um, so in that sense, we see an economic model similar to how affiliate partnerships work in other businesses to pursue comparable measures in the charging space. And really, there's just so many chargers needed. <laughs> I don't want to just spit more numbers at you as we end, although I could. We're just so at the beginning of this that if you look at it like the mobile app revolution, there's so many apps to be made and there's so many chargers and permutations of what this ecosystem will look like. And if you jump in now, it's great. I mean, there's so much to do. Um, and I would encourage anybody who's thinking of making that climate pivot to make the leap because it's worth it and we need you on this side. Last question on my side, uh, that's also a, a traditional question that I ask. I mean, what, what's your personal opinion on the, on the climate crisis? I mean, what would, you, what would be your words to, uh, to people who are afraid of all the terrible and uh, visible consequences of uh, climate change today? I mean, are we doomed? Uh, I mean, what would you tell them? Well, I mean, climate anxiety is a real thing. And I think there's more shaping put around that as a diagnosable mental condition like many others. But the question really becomes, do you decide to live in fear or do you decide to have the courage to take action and do something about it? And frankly, like you can easily get, take a step back and say, well, this is just screwed and it's just too hard and we're just not going to get there and a lot of people allow that situation to kind of become their prison but the reality is it's a trap and frankly we need each person no matter what you do 
whether it be technology, human resources, like I'm not going to name every industry under the sun, but you get what I, where I'm going with this, to take a step to the right and use your skills for climate. We're at a pivotal moment for the future of humanity. And I'm sure you hear this type of stuff all the time from other people's you interview. But just to reiterate it, <laughs> we need you fighting the good fight for climate. We need your skills. There's too many types of technology, in my opinion, being developed today that don't really matter and do not really make an impact in the long run. And there's a brain drain in that. And all I can ask is that if anybody's considering taking the leap to do it, and if there's any way that I or anybody else in the climate community could help you get there, then reach out because we're all on a shared mission and we're all trying to figure this out. And it's through that community of really smart people coming together where you actually wake up every day with a sense of purpose, recognizing that all the odds are against you, but you become the protagonist in your own life and story, where you know that when you look back at the end of your life, you gave it your best shot. So how can uh, you know the community of uh, investors, founders, experts listening to the show can, uh, can help you? Talk about it. Spread the word. It's not, not about me. It's a team. It's a movement. But the reality is, with any new idea, if you believe that lamppost charging is part of the solution, that it should exist, then just talk about it. You want to talk to me about it? Figure it out and contact me. I'm not that far away. Um, in the end of the day, we just need more people standing up. We need more ambition and more people willing to just take that step. So I'm not looking for anything from you. If you may be listening, wherever you may be in the world, other than to just sh share the message, share the story. And if you're really excited about it, reach out and see if we can do something together. Any question that I did not ask you that I should have for this uh, first part of the show? Um, I mean, we've gone in many directions, connected many dots. So I'm sure something will come to me, but the reality is if you think you have what you need, then I'm uh, just happy for the happy to support. Thank you so much, Jeff, for, for your time, for being so generous with your time and uh, your incredible insights uh, on the industry. Uh, I'm so excited to see so many uh, brilliant people like you uh, building exciting projects that can uh, really have an impact and uh, make a dent uh, and uh, you know towards a, a better and a cleaner world. So thank you so much for coming on the, on the show. Well, thank you so much for the opportunity and for doing what you do. We all play a part in this greater mission. So thank you. Hi, it's Guillaume again. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show. As I said, do not hesitate to share an episode with a friend. Also, if you value the work we do for the climate tech ecosystem, here is how you can contribute to it. Today, I'm asking for your support and a donation or sponsorship to make the work of our self-funded team more viable. Even a small contribution means a lot to us. In any case, I will invite you to subscribe to our channels and visit our website startupbasecamp.org to discover more episodes like this one and get your membership to access all our members' exclusive content. So remember, all of this is possible because of your support and donation. And we want you to be part of this collective movement against climate change. Let's keep in touch and I hope you will enjoy our next show with us.